From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. The National Taxpayers Union, a fiscally conservative advocacy group, has found a lot to like about President Donald Trump, from his push to reduce regulation to his support for last year's tax overhaul. And yet, the union has led a coalition of groups in opposition to Trump's trade policies, last year forming a free trade initiative and hiring Brian Riley, formerly of the Heritage Foundation, to run it. Riley is here today to tell me about why the union is standing up for free trade. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me today. So, Brian, I was reading your, bo- your blog and was struck by one post in which you write that, quote, some officials in the Trump administration seem to hold views on international trade that are no more legitimate than believing the earth is flat. And I'm wondering, what views were you referring to? Well, many of the trade views, if you look at the rhetoric, are very concerning compared to what most economists would believe. Some of our main trade advisors, and you look from the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, Commerce Department, uh, our national uh, trade advisor for President Trump, talking about things like trade deficits and trade wars in ways that are far, far different than most economists would look at trade. It's pretty much, uh, if not 100%, as close as you can get among economists that reducing trade barriers is a good policy. And I could talk about comparative advantage and specialization and, and things like that. But certainly, if you look around the world, those countries which are most prosperous are those that are most open to international trade and investment. So to, to look at trade, as many in the administration have, have said, well, we're losing on trade. Every country in the world is taking advantage of us. That's just not true. By being open to international trade and investment, we're going to be more prosperous. That's the focus of our efforts on trade policy, really to, to push back against that view that is um, it's like flat earth economic policy. It's just not right. in, the, in the realm of mainstream economics. And I've noticed, too, you've repeatedly referred to President Ronald Reagan and his support for free trade. And so I'm wondering, are you drawing a contrast between the Republican Party of Reagan and what we seem to be seeing now, which is a new party that rejects some key elements of Reaganism? Well, there, there are two things we're doing. First of all, if we look historically since World War II, uh, going back to Franklin Roosevelt, through President Reagan, through President Clinton, they had radically different opinions on a lot of different issues, but they were pretty united on the idea of we want to reduce U.S. and foreign trade barriers. And President Reagan uh, would almost every time he talked about trade policy in his, in his speeches, it's striking. He would say, I'm old enough to remember the Great Depression. I'm old enough to remember the international tensions that led to world wars. And I understand the importance, not just in terms of economics, but in terms of international diplomatic peace, of not starting what he compared to pie fights. The idea of one person throws a pie, the next person throws a pie, and then pretty soon it's like the old Hollywood movies when it's a big, messy pie fight. Another analogy was we're all in the same boat with our trading partners. And if one of our trading partners shoots a hole in the boat, does it make sense for us to get tough and shoot another hole in the boat? He said, some people say, yes, that's getting tough. He said, I call that stupid. And I think these are, at the time, really important uh, free market economic principles. At the same time, on more of the progressive or or liberal side, um, you had a tradition of wanting more economic growth 
and we encourage that by re- by giving people more access to our markets, encouraging more open policies abroad. Let's look at history, and we are at where we are today. And is it a good thing or a bad thing that we've reduced U.S. and foreign bar- trade barriers? And I think the evidence is pretty clear. It's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've seen, as you say, presidents of both parties since Reagan have really backed free trade and expanded free trade deals. And the Democratic Party has been more had been more divided on the issue. You had a lot of populist Democrats, people like Bernie Sanders, who've long opposed free trade deals. Whereas Reagan's um, legacy really led the Republican Party in support of them until Donald Trump. And it seems like his campaign, his opposition to free trade deals, shook up the electorate in such a way that that states that Rust Belt states that hadn't gone for the Demo- uh, Republicans in years, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, he was able to win those. And so there's obviously a segment of the electorate out there that is very responsive to uh, this opposition to free trade. And how, how do you convince them that it nonetheless is a good thing in their interest? Well, the, the first thing you have to do is be brave enough or willing to talk about it. And that's difficult when you have somebody who has the bully pulpit and is spreading a certain message. But if I go back to President Reagan, I always remind people, and I'm typically, not always, but typically talking to conservative groups around the country. And NAFTA originated with Ronald Reagan in 1979 when he announced he was running for president. He said, I want a North American accord between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Uh, it was President Reagan who signed the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement. It was President Reagan who started the Uruguay Round negotiations that led to creation of the World Trade Organization. So all these things that created the world that we're largely living in. And, you know, we're so much better off today because of trade. And I found that people who are willing to talk about it, most people are willing to listen. My old boss, Senator Jim DeMint was president of the Heritage Foundation, and I, and I asked him, how did you get elected senator from a state, South Carolina, that had lost so many jobs in the textile, textile and apparel industries? And he said, well, I, I looked around the state, I'd say, here's the port, here's all the jobs, here's BMW, here's all the jobs. You know, people in South Carolina knew that they had the largest BMW factory in, in the world, in South Carolina. And every state has winners. And you just have to be willing to point out those winners. And I think it's something that's going to be increasingly important as we're looking at putting tariffs on steel and aluminum, inputs that are used by U.S. manufacturers, that, is going to, that are going to cost jobs in the United States, as we're looking at trade wars that are going to cost jobs if you're in agriculture and you want to export to Mexico or you want to export to China. Th- those people are becoming more engaged. And it's really just not just talking like... Uh, many economists tend to, and this will create billions of dollars in increased GDP, but being able to say, look, here's the BMW plant, here's the Toyota plant, and we have all these jobs, over 7 million jobs in the United States because of international trade and investment, but you have to be willing to make that case. Right. I mean, we've seen tremendous prosperity built upon free trade, and you mentioned examples of the sort of uh, foreign investment that's helped contribute to that. But if you worked in the textile plant in the town in South Carolina, it required you perhaps to move, perhaps to learn new skills. Has the government done enough to help people manage the the changes wrought by free trade? 
that's one of the the big challenges in our economy. I think when you when you have changes resulting either due to international trade or new technology, not just assuming well there's winners and losers, and so we don't care about the losers. But how can you help the losers? And we can have a big debate on the best way to to help them, whether it's helping them relocate to where the jobs are, helping them get retrained, helping them find new opportunities. I find it interesting and not surprising when I look at polls on international trade. It's almost a straight line. The the most overwhelming support for international trade and investment comes from younger people. I think it makes sense. They're positioned to take advantage of new opportunities. And as you get older to my age and even even older, the support or the, the fear of international competition increases. It makes sense. If you're 60 years old and lose a job, it's going to be a lot harder for you to transition into something new than if you're 20, 25 and, and looking at new opportunities. But also, I think it's important to consider that this is not just a phenomenon of international trade. It's changes due to new technologies. I saw earlier this year that I think the last blockbuster store in the United States finally closed because nobody rents videotapes anymore. We all stream it online. Do we want to lock people into those blockbuster jobs because we don't want to lose jobs? I don't think so. And, and your question is so important because a lot of things that get blamed on trade policy or people look to trade policy to try and fix really, I think, have more to do with things like, do we have a good educational system? Do we have a growing economy that's creating new jobs? And the kinds of things that most people probably agree, can agree, uh, we need to move in that direction. So people have more opportunity. Now, you don't stand alone on this. You're part of a broader coalition. Your, your coalition has signed a number of letters to the Trump administration making these points. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Who else is involved and how did that come together? Well, we have a free trade working group. It's a, an informal coalition of groups that gets together about once a month or so. And we invite people from the administration or Capitol Hill, uh, from the private sector. And, and they're typically what we would call center-right groups, but there are some sort of center-left, moderate Democrat groups who share the same kinds of concerns. Now, we've long had a trade deficit in this country, which means we buy more stuff from other countries than they buy our stuff. Um, and Donald Trump makes a big deal out of that. He says this is a really bad thing. You don't agree. Why not? So if I could make one trade policy change, wave my magic wand, it would be that nobody in the government and none of the think tanks would use the phrase trade deficit anymore because I think it's an extremely misleading wording of what's going on. When I hear deficit, I think when any American hears the phrase deficit, it sounds bad. It sounds like we're losing. It sounds like money's being drained from the United States. Sometimes you'll hear uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will use the phrase net exports or trade imbalance. I think those are a little bit better because the bottom line is if I go out, if I leave and go buy a new Ferrari from Italy, I've added I don't know how much a Ferrari costs, dollars $600,000 to the U.S.-Italy trade deficit. Well, how much does America owe Italy because Brian bought a Ferrari? Nothing. Zero. It doesn't mean we owe anybody anything. It means somebody in Italy now has $600,000 that they can use to buy exports from Americans or that they can invest in the economy. And we have trade deficits because, by and large, our trading partners, when they 
earn dollars from selling to us, they, they look around the world and say, where's the best place to invest? It's the United States in many cases, whether they're building factories or the other thing that, um, that is so important is when the federal budget deficit is so high and are due to overspending, the government's got to borrow hundreds of billions of dollars. So they'll go to China, they'll go to Japan, loan us money to, to fund our overspending. Right. So that means we have a trade deficit as a result because instead of buying our exports, they're buying our treasury bonds. So China is buying our treasury bonds. Some would say China is potentially a hostile power. Isn't this a bad thing that they, ha they have that over us? The answer is, if you believe that, maybe we shouldn't be overspending so much in the first place. Maybe we shouldn't be borrowing so much in the first place. So that's the blame is really a made in D.C. phenomenon as, as far as I'm concerned. And the question to me is, do we want to engage in irrational policies because we don't like what the communist government of China is doing. And the th kinds of things that I think would be irrational are, are imposing new tariffs or quotas on steel and aluminum that largely come from our allies, from Europe, from Japan, from Canada and Mexico, um, imposing costs on our allies who ought to be united with us in trying to get China to change. And then also imposing costs on U.S. producers. I think back to the presidential campaign when uh, there was criticism of the, at the time, Oreo cookies were no longer going to be made in Chicago. They were going to be made in Mexico. Well, in the United States, due to trade barriers and U.S. agricultural policy, Americans pay about twice the world price for sugar. So if you want to stay competitive, Maybe you decide we're going to make our oil cookies in Canada or in Mexico. Same thing here. If we drive up the cost of doing business through increased tariffs on steel and increased tariffs on aluminum, you're going to make U.S. manufacturers less competitive, or you're going to encourage them to say, well, we'll just, we'll just try and relocate someplace else in order to be competitive. It's a self-destructive policy. Well, the president is justifying his proposal for steel and aluminum tariffs on the idea that we need our own domestic steel industry in case we get involved in a war. For national security reasons, we need it. Does he have a point? Hey, I would entirely agree that I don't want to fight a war and be worried that we don't have enough steel or aluminum or, or anything else that we need. The fact is, and the Defense Department has said, we make plenty of steel and aluminum in the United States to supply our military needs. I was just looking this morning. There's a, You can go to the Federal Register if if you're a U.S. manufacturer and you want an exemption from steel and aluminum tariffs, and somebody that makes tape that goes around the um, the cables that supply our, our telecommunication and cable infrastructure said, we can't get the supplies we need unless we have an exemption from your tariffs, and that's going to be bad for U.S. national security. There were somebody else uh, who's a, who makes uh, aluminum uh, aluminum tanks in North Carolina for the boating industry uh, said this move by the Department of Commerce just pits one set of U.S. manufacturers against others. And this is one of the things that's so offensive to me. It's the government picking winners and losers and pitting one set of Americans against another in terms of in, as opposed to trying to have us all work together. It's picking winners and losers. Now, but a lot of this is aimed at China, clearly. And China it's long been said, it doesn't play fair on trade, that they manipulate their currency to make their goods more attractive to foreign buyers, um, that they steal our intellectual property. Uh, 
is the, is there any way to get China to trade its behavior besides restricting our trade with them? I absolutely think there is. The best way to do it, though, is not to have the U.S. go it alone and start throwing threats of trade barriers around and essentially almost picking a fight as and alienating our allies who really have the very same concerns that we do. We ought to be working more closely with Canada and with Europe and with Japan and with Korea for our common goals. Now, we can debate whether the Trans-Pacific Partnership was the perfect trade agreement. Well, nobody thinks it was the perfect trade agreement, uh, but it was Canada and Mexico and Japan and many of our trading partners working together to try and lead in a more market-oriented right. direction. This is and, the deal that the president withdrew from uh, shortly after taking office. Yeah, and so now, and and so that loses us some leverage with respect to China. The other TPP countries have gone on without us, and U.S. farmers are also upset because it makes it harder. It gives their competitors in countries like New Zealand and Australia better access to Vietnam and Japan that we don't have because we didn't sign on to the agreement. Now, trade is really a prerogative of presidents. They go in and negotiate the trade deals, and they can pull out of them. They can impose tariff. It leaves con Congress out of it, really. I, is there anything that Congress could do to protect free trade? Congress has, has delegated much of its authority on trade to the administration over the years. Uh, if we enter a trade agreement, Congress has the authority and is required to, to sign off on it. No trade agreements go into effect until Congress signs on. Congress could also say, you can't pull out of an agreement, Mr. President, unless you consult with us first. Many of our trade laws, the way they're written right now, they, are, they look at the impact of imports on industries that are being harmed. The steel is an example. Steel industry, you're harmed by imports, we'll throw tariffs on. Nobody looks at, and by law, the International Trade Commission can't even consider what's the impact of tariffs on boat manufacturers, on car manufacturers, on construction workers. And if Donald Trump follows through with some of his threats on new tariffs and perhaps pulling out of some of our longstanding trade deals, would you want Congress, would you ask Congress to step in to stop him? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and in the past, it's tended to be presidents who have been more open to trade and members of Congress who have been more responsive to regional and parochial concerns. And so things have been flip-flopped right now. And I'll, some people will tell me, well, look, President Trump's not likely to follow through on, on his most extreme demands. He said he would restrict imports of steel and aluminum, but we've given exemptions to Canada and Mexico and others. He's probably not going to pull out of NAFTA. He's probably just talking tough. You don't need to worry. Well, that's not how business works. If if you're trying to figure out where you're, where to source the inputs to your automobiles, or you're trying to figure out what crop to plant because you need to know are you exporting to China or Mexico, or is Brazil going to be exporting there in, instead, that uncertainty is already inflicting harm on the U.S. economy. It's, it's hard to measure, uh, but it's something that's really taking away from the economic growth. And for a president who has been so vocal about, we want to make it easier to do business here. We want less regulations. We want less taxes. All tariffs and quotas are, are new taxes and new regulations. And it really undermines the opportunities for opportunity. 
in the United States. <laughs> thank you, Brian, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. <laughs>